I want to talk to you about uh, a time in the nation of Israel when they were returning from exile in Babylon and returned to the land after 70 years, and it was a time of rebuilding. This is going to be from the book of Nehemiah, and it has to do with, I think, the the particular time that the church globally has found itself in after this pandemic, and I think especially a time that ICP has been in, not only given a pandemic, but given transition of leadership as well. And so from talking with several of you, I know that this has been a very hard season, and it's now almost a time where there's a sense of rebuilding. So the title of the message today is, Come Let Us Rebuild. And it's more than a title, it's really an invitation. And so I'm going to invite the Lord to speak to us this morning uh, before we read our scriptures. So Father God, we thank you for everything that was done at camp, and we thank you for our gathering to worship you this morning, and I pray that you would be glorified Uh, and that you would give us your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts and to activate our wills to follow you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 1, and really I'm I'm, going to read a couple of sections as we go through this because um, this episode in the book of Nehemiah takes up the first seven chapters. So I'd encourage you to go read that uh, in your own time in its entirety. But the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you didn't know, it's two books that were intended as one. Originally, they were contained on one scroll. So it's one narrative, and it tells about three moments of revival in the nation of Israel. The first was Zerubbabel's revival, and he leads a remnant of the, of the exiled people of God out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, and it's about the restoration of the temple. Uh, And then uh, a few decades later, Ezra, the priest, leads another wave of people back to Jerusalem, and it's about the restoration of community uh, based in the scriptures. And so they rediscover the covenant and rededicate themselves to the scriptures. And then what we find here at the start of Nehemiah is a third wave of return and revival in the people. And this is, of course, um, probably the most famous one where Nehemiah leads the restoration of the city walls and thereby the people and their city. And so we're going to read, um, this is about 20 years after Ezra's um, uh, return. Nehemiah finds himself uh, in in exile and he is cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer was kind of like a mix between uh, a uh, a butler, um, a bodyguard, and a sommelier. Sounds like a fun job, really. (laughs) And so this is where we find him. So Nehemiah chapter 1, starting from verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity and about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
Now, if, if you know the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, up until this point, we've seen these two waves of revival and restoration. We've had the revival of the temple, of, of scripture. And so you would think that the people would find themselves in a very healthy, flourishing spot. But Nehemiah finds out that that's anything uh, but the case. 150 years after Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem, the walls were still in ruins. And so there was an essential work of restoration that was left to be done. And you might think, why is Nehemiah so distraught by this news? I mean, what is so important about a wall? Weren't the people doing okay? You know, they were at peace with their, with their enemies in the area. Uh, they were rededicated to scripture. And yet when Nehemiah hears about the walls, he bursts into tears and goes into mourning and fasting for days. Few of us would have that kind of reaction, and I think it's because we need to understand the importance of cities within Scripture, and, they're, and thereby, you know, therefore, walls of the cities as well. But one of the reasons that cities are so important in Scripture and so important in human history is that, sim- that cities are a symbol of human flourishing. Especially in Scripture, cities are a symbol of human flourishing. In one way, you could summarize the entire story of the Bible as a war between two cities. You've got Babel, the city of man, and you have Jerusalem, the city of God. And there's this question right at the start. Babel raises itself up in rebellion against God, and God judges it and disperses the people. And, and at the end of the story, you've got Babel, Babylon, raising itself up against God, and you have the great war at the end of time. And and what you see at the heart of scripture is these two cities represent two approaches to human flourishing. And the question is, I'm going very fast, guys, because I, you know, I want to get through here, but (laughs) sorry, Uh, I want to get through this because I want to get to the the important stuff. Um, You've got these two, not just cities, but cities that symbolize two opposite and contrary approaches to how is humanity going to find its ultimate flourishing? Is it in the city of man where man decides his will and his destiny? Or is it in the city of God where man submits to God's will and God's direction of human destiny? And so cities are a place of flourishing because what they do is they allow people to come together and specialize in their talents. When you live in a you know, small tribal society or you live in a tiny village um, or just as a family, you kind of have to do everything yourself. You've got to be the, the clothing maker, the farmer, the, the butcher, the cook, the everything, right? When you're in a city, wonderful thing about place, a place like Prague is that you know, you have cafe culture, and a cafe is quite a superfluous thing when you're fighting next-door tribes for your life, right? <laughs> As we do in the northeast of America, of course. Um, <laughs> so cities, they provide this, this place of flourishing because there's this safety and there's this ability to specialize and therefore support, with one, support one another with the things that you're actually good at. That can't happen without a wall. And a city wall, for, for, you know, Prague doesn't have a wall anymore, but up until 200 years ago, roughly, virtually every city would have a wall around it to stop from being uh, attacked. And the wall played two functions. Number one, of course, it provides protection. It's a, it's a barrier to keep uh, the people that lived inside safe. But also... Uh, it provides identity. 
It was the line of demarcation to signify this, this is, these are the limits of this city. The people within this city belong to it. And so without those two things, without security and identity, you cannot build community. Without security and identity, you cannot build community. And so the report is given to Nehemiah that the wall is broken, the defenses are disintegrated, but notice that it it goes further than that. It says the people's sense of worth is broken down. It says their ability to flourish is disintegrated. And so the first point here is this. You can summarize this by saying walls provide security, the security and identity necessary to flourish. So the people in Jerusalem, they'd reestablished worship, they'd reestablished scripture, but they had not reestablished the walls of protection and identity around their community. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, I think in some ways the modern church uh, is excellent at putting on worship services, on uh, putting together curricula of Bible study, of of books, and we have a wealth, you know, right in your pocket, you have more information than 99% of Christians throughout history could have dreamed of having. More information than the greatest libraries in history accessible in your pocket. (laughs) And so we've got this wealth of of resources, of biblical studies, uh, more than ever before. But here's the thing. If the walls of a person's sense of security and identity are broken down, then all of the wonderful biblical resources in the world will struggle to help them actually flourish, help them actually develop and flourish as a person in Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, there's an excellent book that I, I don't have with me, but you can, you can look it up. It's called The Other Half of Church, and it's written by a, um, a psychologist and a pastor that, that co-authored. And what they're talking about is kind of brain science and discipleship. So if you're into that kind of stuff, it's fascinating. One of the things they talk about is that the human brain has this kind of dual processor, like those old MacBooks. Uh, you have a dual processor. You have the right brain and the left brain. And everyone's heard of the right brain and the left brain. And you, you think that the creative people are all the left brain or, or you know, whichever one it is. And the, the analytical people are all the other side. And um, that's a misconception. We all have both sides. We all use both sides. But here's the thing that I didn't realize. And that has to do with, with what we're talking about. Um, every single experience, every, every single piece of sensory data that you come across in life, it passes through your right brain first before it gets into your left brain. Your left brain is to do, that, that, that's where conscious thought, analytical thought, language, all of those things reside in your left brain. But in the right brain is where your, uh, your uh, intuition, it's where you, it's your pre-conscious thought resides in your right brain. Everything that you experience, everything that, that you ingest in life, it comes through your right brain before it hits your conscious, analytical, linguistic thought. So, The reality is, when you think about our methods of discipleship, almost all of them are addressed to the left brain, right? They're all biblical tools. They're they're study tools. Um, You know, we have small groups where we focus on maybe doing a course or talking about the sermon, and, and they're all wonderful things. But if you think about it, almost all of them address the left brain. Um, And you may have noticed that for some people, 
those methods, you know, they, they, they go to a Bible study and then they just take off. They just absolutely grow and they flourish. But you encounter other people where it's, it's like they've been in the church for years and years and years and they've done all the stuff and then they, 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 they come to you as a pastor. I'm, I'm a pastor in the U.S. Uh, and they, they come to you and they say, you know what? I'm just not growing. I'm stuck. I can't seem to get any further. I've been doing all the stuff and I'm not getting anywhere. And the majority of the time, what you find is it's because their walls are broken down. And without the walls of security and identity, it's very hard for the flourishing of those left brain things to be able to take root. So that's what these, these two authors talk about in the book. Um, most of the things that shape our character, our identity, our security, our emotions, our sense of belonging are all in the right brain. And, and, so, and so if your right brain skills are not in place, if you don't have the emotional skills, if you don't have a secure sense of identity and belonging within a community, it's very hard for the left brain stuff to function in the way that it should. So if a person is experiencing massive insecurity, maybe it's, a, it's an insecurity of they, they don't know the answer to who am I. Maybe it's, it's a basic insecurity like lack of food, lack of shelter. Um, maybe it's a lack of belonging. They don't know where they fit, uh, a sense of family or selfhood. If you don't have all of those things basically in place, then no matter how many Bible studies and worship services you throw at them, they, they hit a ceiling. And if you've ever been in that place in your life, you know how frustrating that is, and you rack your brain thinking of, what can I do? What can I change? So I think if that's true for individuals, as that book talks about, it's also true for a community. And so you can sum this up uh, in the next slide, that for a community to, to, to mature, for a community to flourish, relational and emotional walls must first be rebuilt. Now, there's been a massive tearing down of just these kinds of walls during this pandemic that we've all gone through in the past couple of years. And, and many people have commented on just the psychological, the emotional effect, for instance, of masks, of not seeing people's faces for a long time. And you guys went through that uh, much more intensely than, than in some areas of the U.S., um, we're going to get back to the idea of the structures of community, but I want, to, I want to pick up a little bit in Nehemiah 2, where we left off in the story. So Nehemiah, he's serving the king, his wine, and if you know the story, he, the king says, uh, Nehemiah, what's going on? You look sad. And he says, how can I be anything but sad when I hear that the walls of my city are in ruins? And so he takes the, uh, this golden opportunity to, to ask the king, um, or the, the king actually asks him, he said, what would you have me do? I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of question you want a king to ask you, right? And so he says, send me back, uh, give me resources, give me people to rebuild the walls. Uh, and so he goes back to Jerusalem. He's got this mission, and it's, it's this really exciting. I'd like to see a movie about this. Um, you know, he goes back, and he inspects the walls, and he rebuilds it. And you can see why there's all these books and sermons on Nehemiah, because he's a very inspiring leader. He's wise, he's prepared, he, he's organized, um, he's courageous, and he's obviously someone to emulate. But I want to pick up verse, sorry, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Let's read this just to pick up the story. So he's inspected the walls, uh, and then he calls all the people together, and he has kind of this brave heart moment with them. 
He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. Now, your translation may say the good work there, but there's actually, when you look at the Hebrew, there is a communal aspect to this. So I really like the translation, the common good. So most of the time when you hear about Nehemiah, it's, yeah, in fact, if you just do a Google search, books on Nehemiah, I challenge you to find one that's not kind of like five principles for leadership or like 10 ways to manage volunteers or, you know. <laughs> the thing is, the point that the book of Nehemiah is not, He's a great leader, but the, the, if, you, if all you get out of it is some leadership principles, you've kind of missed the point of the book. It's not really so much about that. Um, because it's not Nehemiah himself that does the rebuilding. It's the community that does the rebuilding. And as we talk about rebuilding the walls of our community, I want to um, focus on a few things here uh, that we need to absorb, I believe. And that I want to encourage you all as a church body to absorb. So first of all, rebuilding community walls requires telling a new story. If you notice, that's what Nehemiah does with the people there. He tells a new story. Um, one of my favorite authors, Peter Block, uh, is a, uh, he's an expert on community building. And what he talks about is that uh, communities ha- are built on this sense of a shared story. And so... Um, To create, what he says is to create a future that is distinct from the past, what it requires first is to tell a new story. You have to shift the conversation. The reason is our perception shapes our experience of reality. The story that you tell, I mean, a good example of this, all right, recently, this is extremely embarrassing for a person who's an MK and has traveled a lot. Um, I was going to retreat, and the retreat was in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. All right? So I bought a ticket, and, you know, the, the confirmation email comes, and it goes to the church uh, secretary. It goes to the, um, uh, the, the leader of the retreat. I get to the airport. I look at the departure board. I go to the gate. It says it on the gate. I get on the plane. I sit down, and the captain says, Welcome to this flight to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, And I thought, oh, it's just a joke. And no one was laughing. And the terror set in that I am going to a completely different city, a thousand miles away from my destination. <laughs> and it's because my perception was I had bought a ticket to Rapid City. And so even though there were at least 10 different opportunities for me to see Grand Rapids, not Rapid City, every single time my brain saw Rapid City, Rapid City. My, my, does that make sense? My, my, my perception shaped my reality of what I thought I was experiencing. And all the while, it was a complete um, deception. <laughs> I did get there in the end. But our reality shapes our perception. And you see that language has this creative power. You see that from the very first verse of the Bible. God speaks, and the universe is created. 
And we don't have that same power, but we do have a creative power through our language that shapes our experience and our perception. And so to create a new future, we have to tell a new story. And so what was the story that the people were telling themselves? Right? When, when, when Nehemiah asked the, the, the people coming back from Jerusalem, he said, how's Jerusalem doing? What was the story they told? Well, they said, the wall's broken down. The people are distraught. Uh, they, they have no good. So the story they were telling was defining their reality by what was lacking, by what was broken, by what was missing. The norm in our society is to focus on what is deficient. But if you want to create a different future than the past, you have to focus not on problems, but on possibilities. You have to focus not on what's lacking, but what you have. What are the gifts within your community? And it becomes a different question. Rather than, you know, problem solving is wonderful. We all have to do it. But problem solving, essentially, you, all you can do, it limits you to tinkering with what you already have. If you want something new, you can't do it just by problem solving. You have to do it by talking about possibility. And so Nehemiah, he comes to the people and he tells a different story. He doesn't say, he doesn't just say, hey, let's fix this, let's fix that. He says, essentially, what can we build together? And it raises the people's viewpoint to think about a different kind of future. It shifts the conversation from deficiency to possibility. And so I want to ask you this question. As we've gone through pandemic, as we've gone through leadership transition here, what is the story? If you honestly think to yourself, what is the story that I find myself telling about this church? When people ask me, how's the church doing? What's ICP like? What's the question, sorry, what's the story that you find yourself telling? Is it a story that's based on, well, we've gone through this, we've gone through that, and, you know, that's natural. We, we, we all have done that, and you have to do that at a certain, uh, in, in certain times. But if it's a story defined by lack, by deficiency, then I want to tell you it's going to be very hard to ever move out of that and do something new. Instead of thinking about what this community lacks, what if you begin to think about the gifts that God has placed within it? The thing that you do here every Sunday morning by putting all this stuff together every week and, and you know, the fact that this church could survive a year after pandemic without a pastor, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. I don't know if you know that. Uh, a lot of churches did not make it through COVID. Not to mention not having a pastor through part of it. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. You would be amazed if you begin to think of not just what's lacking, but what God has actually given you as a community, the gifts that reside in this place, there's a completely different possibility that can begin to emerge. So here's the second thing. Rebuilding requires accepting the freedom of citizenship. All right? I'm going to rush through these and, um, and uh, leave you with some questions to think about. But... Um, it's all well and good talking about possibility. Um, the reality in most cases is that one or two people end up actually doing most of the stuff. There's that 80-20 rule, right? But what you see through the great movements of history is that for a, a truly new future to emerge, it takes a group of people taking ownership. 
It takes people moving from just being subjects to being citizens. And the difference between a subject and a citizen, a subject has no say. They are subject to the circumstances that are ruling them. A citizen has a say. A citizen has a, a, a measure of ownership over the direction of the city that they belong to. They have a say. And so God's intent for his people is not just to make us subjects, but to make us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's the only kingdom that, that, that brings those two things together. It's incredible. So we are citizens, the Bible says, of heaven. Not only subjects of heaven. Jesus didn't just send his angels out to do the, the work of spreading the gospel. He takes his children and matures them and sends them out as citizens of heaven into the world. So if you begin to tell a new story of possibility as a community, and each of us in the community begin to see ourselves not just as going along with what's happening, but actually as citizens, as agents of that possibility, then it begins to shift your questions. When you're in problem-solving mode, all that you're asking is, okay, um, What's it going to cost to fix this? How long will it take? Right? When you think like a citizen, you begin to say this. You begin to say, what am I willing to commit? You begin to say, what am I willing to risk to bring about this, this new season? Not how much will it cost, but what price am I willing to pay? And so, I believe uh, I mean, I've, I've preached this to my own church, but also from what I know that you guys have experienced, I believe this is something where each of you all need to consider uh, not just how much is it going to cost and who's going to do it, but what am I willing to do? What am I willing to risk um, for the flourishing of this community, for the common good, as it says in Nehemiah? Um, it's not about just leaders Although we thank God for the elders and, and the deacons in this church that have given so much of themselves uh, to, to, uh, to keep it alive and, and keep it going forward. But if it's only that small group of people, then this church is not going to live in the fullness of what God hopes and intends for it. Because Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's a sport everyone is in the game. And so... The invitation before you, I believe, is this. It's the next slide. Our invitation is to come create together as citizens. Come, let us rebuild, Nehemiah says. And I love chapter 4, verse 6. You know, after all this, this, these challenges and obstacles and these enemies that rise up, chapter 4, verse 6 simply says this. It says, so we rebuilt the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Oh man, what, what God can do with a people that have a mind to work. Let me tell you, I come from the ministry of Battelle, that's where I grew up, and it's in about 100 nations, sorry, 100 cities and 25 nations or so, and 95% of it is run by former heroin addicts. That's supposed to be impossible, Right? These are, these, are, these are men and women that can't get a job usually. But when they have a mind to work and when they know that they're citizens of heaven and when they think about the possibility of what God could do because they believe that scripture is actually applicable to real life, 
man, the things that can happen, the lives that can be changed. And here's the thing, last couple points. 1 Peter 2.5 says this, the walls of the church are built with living stones. So the thing is, you're not only the builders, you are the stones of the walls. And this is where our families come in, all right? Because uh, especially parents, if you're a parent here, um, this, this, you'll understand how this applies to you. But here's the thing. I believe scripture teaches that every single man and woman, a man, every man is called to fatherhood. Every woman is called to uh, motherhood. And not, I'm not talking biologically. I'm talking, you know, for some of us, that is a biological calling. But for many of us, that is a spiritual calling as well. That every one of us has a place within God's family to, to mother and to father the next generation, to disciple, to, to, to help them grow into the fullness of who God has made them to be. And so uh, we need to shift the conversation. We need to, we need to think of uh, ourselves as citizens, but we think of ourselves also as part of that wall. You are part of the defense around the community of God's people. You are part of what helps protect the identity of God's uh, family, of God's people. And so when you read what Nehemiah does, he, he doesn't activate just leaders. He activates whole families. It's so cool. You see mothers, fathers, kids, everyone joining in in this work. And so um, it's not just limited to the leaders. Again, this is, this, is, this is part of the calling of God over every one of his children to be part of the living walls of his city that, that it talks about were being built up into a living temple. All right, so... To finish off, there's a few pragmatists in the room saying, yes, Ian, but how? So I have to talk to them. (laughs) How do we rebuild the relational and emotional walls? Well, I I can't get into all the details of this because some of it you're going to have to apply uh, in your own context and situation. But here's something I'm noticing in our context. You may be noticing this here. Um, The people in my church... um, (laughs) They don't seem to be very hungry for courses and Bible studies and programs. We've been trying really hard to put stuff on and kind of not many people turn up. What I am noticing is that they're hungrier than ever for joy and for connection. And so what I'm seeing is rather than these kind of like uh, study-based things popping up, what I'm seeing is I've got um, uh, home groups based around having fun together. We've got a retirees group that just started with with like dozens of of retired people and they go and hang out together and they have fun. They play games and they serve people. It's connection. It's joy. And so I I believe the the question to ask when you're thinking about how do we do things as a church that that rebuild the walls of emotion and, and relational attachments, it's the question of this, okay? Where are we experiencing joy as a community? Where are we seeing it happen, you know, beyond our efforts? Because that's an indication of God's grace on something, all right? Where are we experiencing joy? Let's lean into that for a while. (laughs) Let's rebuild our community um, through where God is releasing joy. Um, Where are we experiencing joy? And this, how do we, uh, where are we seeing relational bonds being formed? Where are we seeing Bonds of love being formed. So these are, when, when you think through that prism, you begin, to, you begin to think about things that minister to the right brain. 
things that promote joy and promote uh, relational bonds. And you say, Ian, that's not very spiritual. Sounds like you're talking about being with people and eating and, you know, and I said, yeah, read the Gospels. (laughs) If it's not very spiritual, why did Jesus spend most of his time doing it? It's because Jesus understood that the walls of a person's identity, of their belonging, of their sense of love and security need to be built up before they can receive everything uh, that that, uh, must be taught and understood in, in the mind. And so I believe these are things that we can lean into in this season. It doesn't mean, of course, we never get rid of rigorous Bible study and all of those things, but it does mean there, it's recognizing there's a lot of people in our midst that need the rebuilding of those emotional and spiritual walls. And I believe as we lean into that for this season, we're going to see uh, a, a new sense of flourishing. And so I want to leave you with a couple questions for you to think about uh, on your own time, to think about as a community. Uh, and it's this, you can, you can put them up. So this is the invitation. Come, let us rebuild. It's time to shift the conversation from problems to possibilities. And and I just speak this over you as a community. You're not defined by what you lack. You have an incredible wealth of gifts and talents and experience represented in this room, not to mention cultural diversity. It's beautiful, it's incredible. And so the question is, not just what's wrong, but what do we want to build together? Building is the work of every citizen. And so I want each of you, as, 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 if you, as you consider being a citizen, not just a subject, it's the question of what am I willing to commit to benefit the whole? And then lastly, it's the question of Contribution. And because some of you will be thinking, well, I, I want to commit, I want to give, but I don't know what to do. And here's a question to help you with that. It's this, what is the gift that I continue to hold in exile? What is the gift that other people don't know that I have yet, that I'm withholding for some reason? And so um, I'm going to close in prayer. I don't know. Um, if we have time for anything else, but I'm going to close in prayer and just and bless you and leave you with these questions. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Um, so let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you've been faithful. You've been there through these last couple of years in this community. Lord, and I thank you for all of the gifts that you've deposited here, all of the faithful citizens that take ownership week in and week out to bless your people, to work for the common good. Lord, and I pray that, that uh, today you would begin to speak to every single person that is part of this church family to say, what is my contribution? What am I willing to risk? What am I willing to give? What can we build together? Holy Spirit, would you empower every single member of this ministry, as Ephesians 4 says, to do the work of the ministry? Would you empower leaders, those who are in positions ordained or not, uh, to equip all the saints for the work of that ministry so that this body as an entirety would grow up into maturity? And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.